One thing we definitely do not do enough of in our little crypto art bubble is question people's origins. Not question them as in interrogate them, but just be curious about them. We are, after all, a vast and absurd collection of individuals from ultra-diverse backgrounds, and yet those backgrounds seem to oftentimes be blotted out by the sheer largesse of the crypto art movement we find ourselves in. Except in the case of a really, really unique background, like the background of my guest today, Mr. Aaron Huey. I'll talk more about his specific achievements at the beginning of our interview, but it's enough to know that Mr. Huey has been practicing at or near the quote-unquote apex of photography for something like two decades now. He has traveled all over the world telling the stories of the Lakota people in the U.S. state of South Dakota, the Taliban in Afghanistan, all sorts of oddballs and big idea believers he has come across in his decades spent cataloging the world. And it's vital to remember that background now that Mr. Huey has expanded his practice to include all manner of new technologies, AI, virtual worlds, and ding, 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 the blockchain itself. He has settled himself into an interesting niche here in crypto art, playing the role of observer as much as active participant. And in our conversation, this pull between the Aaron Huey of yesterday and the Aaron Huey of today is palpable. With old ways of doing business and creating art dying on the vine, Huey has become a self-proclaimed Olympic multimedialist, though I'm fairly certain he offered that title ironically. We talk about an incredible array of topics. Through the lens of Huey's own staggering artistic history, we talk about all the technologies I mentioned above, the importance of mastering many mediums, the demands on today's artists, the pull towards fringe technologies for the sake of storytelling, and a whole lot more. And always, 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 there's that double-sided pull between past and future. Huey's as a background, yes, would be wise to keep in mind, but ultimately it's impossible not to. So please enjoy my conversation with Aaron Huey on today's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody, and happy Halloween. It is 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. My name is Max Cohen. Welcome to Mocha Live. And our guest today is Mr. Aaron Huey. Um, I'm going to list the laundry list of accomplishments, so just bear with me. A 30-time Nat Geo photographer. You've walked the entirety of the United States. You've been a fellow at Stanford three times, which I presume is probably pretty rare and difficult to do, having not been a fellow at Stanford even once myself, Um, but fingers crossed. Uh, Founder of Amplifier.com, but perhaps most exciting for our purposes today, um, you've been working with like many of the technologies that in crypto art are like mother's milk, AI, blockchain, metaverse world. So I originally titled this podcast, at least in like the notes, taking photos in a world that may no longer need them. And you responded pretty um, elegantly uh, in the opposite direction. So does the world need photography? Yeah, I could. I thought maybe you're just trying to bait me with that one into like into that question, into like answering. There's so many questions in that is what is photography? And then like, how do you define a need? Because I, I think we're kind of the what counts as photography has been a big topic, especially with with AI assisted imagery being so mm-hmm. big, especially in the crypto world, it just became kind of almost like the only thing anybody was buying besides like the old yeah. hits. So, and then with, you know, the community I came out of with photojournalists, it was, 
really controversial because it was it mostly there it was just people asking how will we even know what's real anymore but i love the question of what counts as photography now because you know people i would see in the forums would be like well it's it's light on film or light on a sensor but there's so many kinds of photography that do not involve any light at all like uh, you know the james webb telescope is using ultimately like it's data visualization, it's wavelengths, it's things that we can't see, it's not really light. Um, you know, I had access to the world's smallest scanning electron microscope in this office for a couple of months and there's no light involved in that. It's like electrons bouncing off of things onto, onto sensors on an iPad or does AI count as photography? It's made of photography, it's made of billions and billions of, of photographs remixed it's like the ultimate photographic like assemblage or collage it's like photographs atomized and reformed you know that's of course not what it is but i like that idea that it's like atomized photography completely reassembled well i think it's less about for me like what actually constitutes a photograph because that's obviously going to depend on you know how much exposure people have to these technologies whether they you know i think if you probably pulled 100 people on the street i'm not sure how many of them would you know give the light definition like the actual like miriam webster definition but i'm more thinking in terms of quantity right because mm. photography is so accessible in a way and, and high level photography. I mean, that's like the whole crux of all of these iPhone ads that have come out over the last however many years is like anybody can have access to really high level professional pho photography tools. Yeah. And so we're inundated every day with photographs of everything, you know, macro, micro. I mean, you mentioned the uh, electron microscope they use for the Radiolarians um, series, right? Which is like photographs of a thing that is it's real, but it's so far out of the bounds of what is mm -hmm. like reality. So, and then, you know, I want to talk about this more in, uh, in a bit, but your series of metaverse um, images and videos, the leaps and perimeters where you go to like the literal edges of these metaverse worlds and kind of jump off or, or push against the edge. Like, is that photography? It's capturing something. It's, it's really capturing something, but it's capturing something unreal. So I don't know. I mean, we have a ton of composite photographers that have quite a bit of like fame and notoriety within crypto art, but you know, it, I do think it's just interesting that photography in general seems to be moving more towards the fringes, more exploring like at its edges. What is photography? Is it things that just are light? Is it, you know, can you have real images of digital worlds? Um, I mean, why do you think there's that kind of collective pull towards the fringes or, or kind of undoing our understanding of photography? Maybe because it's it is just it's it's easy to make a great picture now. Um, I think, but it's not easy to. There aren't very many great storytellers. There's like everybody and their grandma can be a great photographer with a single image because anybody can be in the right place with the right light for a moment for a singular moment. But there are very very few people who can tell great stories with photography still. I think, but I think it's just the, the collective desire to like you know, in a world where we're completely swallowed by endless imagery to stand out. And sometimes I think that that is through, through the edges of the medium and through the changing of the shape of the container itself, the, the container of the story or, you know, the kind of light, you know, we talked about, you talked about the metaverse photography, that's light from a virtual sun in like a, you know, in a virtual world and virtual space. Like that's another take that sets it apart from, another iPhone photo out of 
you know, a trillion iPhone photos. Well, I'm always interested in like the various levels of grace that are afforded to artists working with different mediums, because like an oil painter, you know, the narrative, I guess, of the artwork itself is contained pretty much within like the one frame. You know, you can look at the single like oil, acrylic, whatever classical painting you want, and it's kind of judged completely by its own merits. Photography is different. Photography, you kind of need the series, right? You kind of need the full context. I mean, not always, of course, but like you were saying, one picture rarely tells the entire scope of the narrative it's sometimes it has to though i mean like i would get like the new yorker assignments where you knew there was only going to be one photo and it, the photo mm -hmm. did actually have to tell the story of like buto's assassination or you know the you know uh, uh, eradicating opium in southern afghanistan like you get one picture or you get two and that's that is the decisive moment i think the world will always need the decisive moment um i but but we 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 will not get rid of the need for the decisive moment. Like that is how we understand what is real in the world. Often is that those singular imagery that appear um, that tell us the story from Palestine or wherever the news is that day. Um, you know, those we'll, we won't get rid of that need. I guess, I guess my my question is more along the lines of like the various levels of I guess the various like physical inputs that need to be contained within each medium for it to be kind of seen as successful again i mean i think you pretty much answered my question by you know talking about the various power that a single photograph can have but like you were saying you know if any everyone and their mother has access to really mm -hmm. high level professional photography as an example i think ai factors into this as well because it takes you know the same principle of producing or putting into people's hands high level professional art making tools but it becomes so much more about the context and mm -hmm. the intention along kind of like a much larger time horizon. Yeah. And when you're dealing with really, really, really complex stories, then you need more than one image because you're trying to relay that complexity in all of its layers. So if you're telling the story of an entire people, like if you are in doing a national geographic cover story, you're making a body of work over a year and a half that will likely be the largest story ever told about that group of people. And so it, then it like, there's a responsibility. It defines them in a lot of ways, whether fair or unfair, that's what happens if you've got like the biggest piece ever made about an entire people. And so you, to do justice to that, you have to reveal as many layers and voices as possible um, that can fit into that container. <laughs> do you think that like, and this is a loaded question in what I'm sure will be a series of them, but do photographers run the risk or at least traditional photographers run the risk of being mm, kind of reduced to background noise if they don't kind of further embrace the modern technology, whether that's AI, whether that's metaverse, whether that's minting on the blockchain, you know, in every specific circumstance is going to appear a little differently. But I guess my worry is that there will be like with AI, there's going to be so much of certain kinds of artwork, photography, perhaps amongst them, or perhaps photography is even a good like precursor to this phenomenon. But like without that kind of embrace of technology, without, you know, seeking out the, um, you know, electron microscope, without seeking these like literal arenas for one's photography that have never been captured before, do you think photographers run the risk of becoming, I guess, ancillary, I suppose? No, I mean, I think the bigger crux right now within the industry of people that are making photographs of reality is that there are less and less places willing to pay you for those photos or send you yeah. out 
get them. So we don't have too many photographers and we, we do need them to keep capturing the moments that are and that we, the, in the same traditional way, we just, we have way, way, way less places to put them out in all their complexity. And so then it leads to more need to self-publish or create one's own magazine via a social channel, but then with the social channels and algorithms changing so rapidly and kind of collapsing, I think everybody's looking to figure out how to get out that material. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, as far as like whether it's the people become irrelevant or not, I think that question probably only like only in the world of like like art curators, maybe. I don't I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. ever asked that question within the world of like journalism, that if somebody doesn't do the absolute newest medium, they're irrelevant. I do think they have less and less out outlets to move the imagery if they don't embrace whether it's you know social or any any aspect as it comes next you know digital photography uh blockchain you know i you mentioned just a moment ago something i want to hit on which is that like there are so many less outlets for especially the kind of photography that you've done throughout at least the last you know 20 years or so and as far as i'm aware right uh, i've heard you talk about nat geo and how it's shutting down at least in its current form i think in january just one piece of it, the the magazine will no longer be on sh- on uh like you know on public shelves in like grocery stores January 1st but it feels like a pretty substantial moment because it's it's saying that the world has voted that that's not needed anymore in a lot of ways because we vote with our dollars and mm-hmm. uh, the buying pub- public has decided that that print publication is no longer needed which is a complex moment but that's like, you know, that was my exposure and perhaps I've been negligent in this, but my exposure to like Nat Geo or, you know, th- these magazines in uh, grocery stores and um, doctor's offices, right? And like you get exposure to these worlds and these like little like portals that you're finding sporadically kind of like hidden throughout your like day-to-day life. But, you know, without these places, right, the photographer, but also like just the artist at all, because I think it applies to writers. I think it applies to just graphic designers, right? Especially more AI, less necessary need for a human touch specifically, at least in like the corporate sense and the personal sense, I think it is preserved. But regardless, like one thing that we decry all the time in crypto order that I hear people decrying is that there's so much pressure on artists to not just be able to be art makers they have to be kind of specialists of all these different things the marketing the social outreach the you know curation um i mean how important do you think it is for artists and maybe photographers specifically but to create their own opportunities as opposed to this you know past paradigm where you pitch or be put on an assignment or you'd have these kind of like nexus areas that are interested in certain kinds of art and are going to go out and find it yeah, that's definitely going away with the collapse of a lot of the big publishing publishers. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, I think everybody's reaching. Everybody's trying to understand which one of the social platforms will survive and, you know, how to pierce through the algorithms. And yeah, it's absolutely... I, I've been asked to go speak at some colleges re- recently about uh, how to make it as a photographer and how to get work. And I don't really have the... There's, I don't have the answers anymore because the answers are completely changed just in the last few years. Um, it's definitely, as you said, you can't rely on somebody else. Everybody's going to have to be building entire brands and their own digital ecosystems and, you know, building the, their own containers rather than showing up and having them, 
get distributed by a, like the big machines. Yeah. Although I do think there's this paradigm that we see of these, like the paradigm of the collective, right? Where you are, I mean, I, I might just be describing a business. So just bear with me if I end up doing that, but like you have the photographer or the artist and you have the marketers and you have the you know development team and they're all kind of collaborating on the thing that they want to see coming out. And like, they are all taking their individual skills that are maybe not applicable in the greater I know, economic atmosphere and then applying them to like a singular project and then propagating themselves from there. Um, I, I, we see that a little bit in the crypto art world, anything in like your photographer circles that like mirrors that, or is that still kind of like, you know, just again, one path through a very dense wood. No, it sounds like the machine you're describing sounds like the agencies or, you know, commercial work less than the, than like the people that are documenting reality. I'm actually mm -hmm. really curious. What is the most interesting thing about like the, the photographer or photography and the photographic experience to an audience like Mocha, I actually, because this is not like photography has not been a very popular thing within the world of crypto art. Um, the, you know, very, very few people made that work. Um, it's not a popular medium unless you're as, you know, in the NFT world, unless you're talking about uh, like AI based, you know, photo based AI. I'm mm -hmm. so curious what, what the appeal is for a Mocha audience. I want to be able to speak to that for sure. It's a great question. I think that if I have to speak for the entire crypto art community, which I'm not <laughs> necessarily, uh, you know, I have not been sponsored. So this is uh, freewheeling. Um, crypto art tends to idealize and um, champion things that are digitally native by nature. Um, and especially mm -hmm. things that are blockchain native by nature. So there's a lot of pushback. I don't, have it myself but there's a lot of pushback that i see on take an oil painting for example an oil painting that's been scanned digitized and then uploaded to the blockchain yeah. because it seems to reduce the blockchain to a distribution mechanism which is awesome mm -hmm. and probably important characteristic but the art itself seems to be there's so much more that can be done with it if it has some kind of interaction with the technology itself or it only makes yeah. sense in a digital world I agree with that, which is why I actually did not jump in very early on to just start taking old JPEGs to mint. I mm -hmm. very specifically was like, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me to just take old stuff and put it up, put it on, on chain because it's, because everybody's going crazy over it. Um, and so really all the first things I started minting were digitally native work, like, you know, two years ago, the photographs I was making inside of metaverse worlds with virtual cameras, you know, I, I was I made a bunch of different custom avatar bodies and went into dozens of metaverse worlds and in the beginning treated it like like reportage like I was photographing moments and people doing what they did I was photographing things like women giving birth like in second life really <laughs> crazy shit and then and then it turned into the kind of experimental work at the edge of metaverse worlds and the leap series where I was jumping off those worlds and which really became like a performance art series of sorts. So that was a lot of the first work that I was comfortable minting because it did feel like it was supposed to be there and it was was native to the space or like the, the AI work with currency of protest. And it hasn't been until recently that I decided to put massive amounts of kind of legacy work on, on chain. And I did that most recently with by minting every single frame that I shot from 1998 to 2000 uh, as like a foundational project um, because it for me it was like minting process itself like minting yeah. my own birth as a photographer 
and because it was a case study of like a, of a huge archive and so it wasn't about trying to make a bunch of money off a single jpeg and it was it was uh saying i believed in the idea of putting an entire archive every frame on chain but that's what i'm talking about right it's like that takes the idea of the blockchain and says okay what are the capabilities here right okay record keeping is one of the most important things yep, exactly. right? so i'm going to take this this record that of the record of things that no one's ever going to see otherwise and may have no you know quote unquote purpose otherwise and by fixing into the blockchain the method you have with first film like it does kind of leverage what the blockchain can do and, and why it's important so i think that like that's a perfect example uh, again i have no specific lean either way um i think using the blockchain as a record keeping instrument as a timekeeping instrument um as merely a distribution mechanism like they're all kind of revolutionary they're all like still fringe because we underestimate within crypto art how fringe anything blockchain remains when mm -hmm. you talk to people in your circle or people you've been photograph photographing with not photographing mm -hmm. but you, you get my meaning um yeah. like what is the attitude in your like I don't know, kind of, I, I, I'm reticent to call it legacy media. So I apologize in advance, but like this kind of- That's all right. I struggle with the language around it too. I'll, I'll often use the word legacy media too. But like these like Nat Geo New Yorker photographers who have this kind of history, you know, older folks who have this history within this one medium, within this one kind of business model, like what is their attitude towards blockchain, towards- you know, engaging with this new technology is there pushback on their part or yeah, are they I like... think for most of them it for most of them it got super tainted just by uh by the the scammy nature of things and just by watching watching failed projects or like dipping a toe in and then just feeling everything feeling really sketchy and scammy and getting rugged all the time by like people saying things were going to work that didn't work and so I think there's just people were on the sidelines for a very long time, unless they believed from the beginning in like the nature of blockchain archive. And now mm -hmm. I think more people are like, if I talk to, let's say the people that are running the photo society archive, which is like every trying to, they're trying to gather every photo ever taken on assignment by national graphic photographers, uh, because the, they don't trust national graphic to archive that itself responsibly. And they're trying to find a home for these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of images. And I think they do believe that like blockchain is a possible is, is the solution for them. Um, it just takes some money. But as far as them jumping in to try to sell work, um, I think it's just really difficult in this environment. And they haven't seen a lot of great case studies of really important work that's of high quality, like working in the space. Sure. I mean, do you find yourself struggling as so many people in my network do to like legitimize blockchain or NFTs or the things that you do? I mean, if you're anytime I explain NFTs to anybody outside of my, you know, crypto art community, you're met with the same blank stares, the same like, well, why can't I just right click save as that piece? You know, it's dangerous. It's monkey pictures. Like, do you find that pushback even in like these professionals here? Yeah, yeah, you do. I because people just default to like negative stories about the whole world. So the only way I can really talk about it is if I'm talking about safe archives. I can talk about safe archives, and mm -hmm. I can talk about a second income stream because a lot of people will sell prints separately from uh, from the digital file. And so for some people, that's 
kind of boggles their mind that they can continue to sell prints, but just sell somebody the digital version of it. And it's the, this, the conversation's a long ways off still, I think, in some of these circles. Yeah, but you, I, you're still throwing yourself into you know, the stigma itself by engaging with these technologies, especially like having had the career outside of them and then kind of moving forward into them after this, after like achieving this kind of like establishment as a person of, uh, you know, worth or, you know, note within, you know, your sphere. Um, so it just, I, I always find it so interesting because one of like the tenants that I'm so firm on communicating is that because blockchain is fringe, everyone getting here has taken their own like really unique, weird journey to get here. You're not just like stumbling up. I mean, you are stumbling upon it, but it's not being presented to you. Like how, when did you first become aware of all this stuff happening? Like all this weird interconnected world of like bleeding edge interrelated blockchain-esque technology. Probably when the rest of the world was hearing about it in news cycles, I was not early. I was not collecting early crypto art or making early digital art, but I was most interested in uh, like what year it was, would have been when I probably when it, the length, when all of the blockchain conversations and NFTs started merging with an awareness about metaverse spaces and virtual place. And mm-hmm. I was, I just, I, at first I was just really interested in, in exploring virtual space and trying to understand what kind of cameras could be used there and what could be made. So mm-hmm. I saw it really as just an extension of the map into new worlds. I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail, like the leaps yeah. and perimeters and your experience in these metaverse worlds, because to me, from my perspective, the metaverse as a like quote unquote buzzword is getting treated very much like NFTs are where it was like this really mm-hmm. exciting concept for a second that everybody was talking about in, you know, Bloomberg and Forbes in these like yeah. interested, but also somewhat like um, condescending or performative like articles. And then it's kind of been thrown to the wayside um, mm-hmm. as nothing really came of it. And as Facebook has like bungled every possibility to legitimize it. So like, yeah, you you look like you have yeah. something to say. People people thought that when when I started because I managed to talk National Geographic into an assignment in in the metaverse in two thousand one. Well, that was what it would have been Second Life. No, so no, sorry, sorry, twenty twenty one. Sorry, no, twenty twenty one. No, no, people people had. I was like, damn man, that's OG. I wish I could say that was two thousand one. No, um. No, 2021, and right after Facebook changed its name, whenever Nat Geo would talk about it or I would talk about it, people thought that I was working for Mark Zuckerberg, that people actually believed that the word metaverse meant Mark Zuckerberg's meta. And so it got really complex right away, and I had to keep reminding people that, that virtual worlds that were persistent and social, that didn't turn off when you turned off your computer, and that... People were still in there uh, that this was like a mid around in the mid 90s um, mm-hmm. and, you know, then had its like first huge lives with Second Life in the early 2000s. There were construction companies in Second Life in the early 2000s. So really, it made started to make more sense to talk about them as uh, as like in a lot of ways to some groups as like gaming worlds, because they could understand that a little bit better because their kids were all in them. their kids were in Minecraft and in Fortnite and Roblox, and these were persistent social worlds. Um, and so if it was expanded to really just talk about virtual worlds and set in context of like going back into the mid-90s, 
uh, then it helped a little bit. And especially if you talk to the people that understand that there are like hundreds of millions of people in these virtual worlds in gaming worlds, then, then they are like, Oh, that's, that's a big audience. So maybe we could still tell that story if there's really 200 million people in it. Um, but yeah, yeah it's the word metaverse became really problematic. Exactly. Like, uh, like NFTs, I, I had a brief startup that was building like essentially like a metaverse magazine that where you would walk through story worlds instead of scroll through them and, you know, in the attempt to create national geographic like material using photographic objects. So another definition of like, is, is a photographic object, a photo is a photogrammetry is a world that's made of 30,000 photographs set around like a, an architecture that makes it into an object that replicates the world. Is that Mm. photography? I think it is. Um, but we were trying to build that, you know, at the beginning of the boom of the word and then through the crash of the word. And as the market crashed, everybody disappeared, all the rugs got pulled. And that was the end of that game because it was all tied up in in like the hype cycle. But I sure. re- remained really interesting beyond interest beyond the hype cycles because I'd never been into it was like a new world. It was like another country. Like mm didn't stop being interested just because it wasn't on the news anymore yeah i mean the metaverse thing fascinates me i um i was a serious world of warcraft addict as a teenager um and i know how real those worlds can can feel a bit of a digression but i had to stop playing those games not only because my parents made me stop playing those games but because the activities that were being required to like advance past a certain point were like scheduled it was like you were meeting. I couldn't go out on like or do something on a Wednesday night at nine because I had to like oh, yeah. raid with my guild. And it was the, you know, it was a real world responsibility that just happened to play out within this virtual world. And I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in it. And um, I wrote a, a really long piece about kind of like the history of these virtual worlds and virtual values last year. Um, and one of the people I spoke to speaking of Second Life was Philip Rosedale, who founded it. And what I found a little bit surprising about that conversation is that he was more pessimistic about the metaverse than I think almost anyone I've spoken to. Not that he wasn't a believer in it, because obviously he's been running, he founded this game and has been running this virtual world for 20 years, but he's doesn't believe the technology is even close. He thinks that there are all of these like um, safety benchmarks that are not being cleared, not by like a mile. Um, and he's, I think, pretty reticent to even though he's had so much experience seeing like people give birth in second life, right. It's like the whole, a whole ecosystem, a whole world of possible like opportunities and actions and relationships in there. Like, isn't sure that that's going to appeal to like the grand glut of people. It's like, yeah. When you were like, when you were pitching this story to Nat Geo about the metaverse, like what is it about this concept that grabs you or that you're bullish on or that you think is worth exploring because you're going into these worlds that are like, that's inherently going to be niche, right? You take Mm -hmm. a picture of, you know, the um, Georgian Caucasus mountains, for example, to go back to first film, right? It's like, there's a universality there because it's, it's nature, it's the world, you know, anyone can access that. You start moving into these metaverse spaces and suddenly you're diminishing the amount of people who are going to a be interested in this in the first place, but also like be able to connect with it in a way that the narrative is kind of fully evoked. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it wasn't because I thought it was like the way of the world. It was a novelty. Like, mm-hmm. I had never seen a serious body of work made with virtual cameras inside of virtual worlds. And it was an opportunity to try to start making that. 
But then over time, what made me want to start building was beyond the hype cycle, storytelling will become more dimensionalized. I don't think that like for the masses that that big popular like uptake will happen through VR headsets, but it's storytelling will be more and more dimensionalized. It won't be flat. There'll be more ways to make it dimensionalized in any of the screens we use. And then of course, when everybody's got Apple glasses instead of a brick in their pocket, like the Apple, this, this thing's not going to be around in five or 10 years. We're going to have something different. And so when that changes Mm -hmm. shape and it becomes, you know, they finally break through the tech and get uh, XR glasses on everybody we will have to understand how to do dimensionalized storytelling. And so I was really interested in that part of, of these live spatial worlds is like what stories could be told. What do the photographic objects look like? How do you embed the voices of community into and culture into, into these places? Well, what kind of stories can be told? Um, I mean, I, I know we've kind of like danced. I'm in the middle of building one now that's just been kind of, it's been uh, on hold for a long time because I finished almost a year ago, but I, uh, a lot of things I think that tell a story that whether, where time has passed and you can't access anymore or where something's too sensitive. Like I was building the first big immersive projects for national geographic for our auditorium in DC about really sensitive cultural heritage sites that were either too far away for people to get to, like we were talking about indigenous elders that couldn't get back to these places or it was generally that, and they were too sensitive to send people there. We didn't actually want people to know where these places were, but if you wanted people to know that they needed to be protected, you kind of have to be able to share it with them. And, and an immersive experience is one of the better ways to really feel like you're like you're there and like it's worth protecting. And so we recreated experiences with like millimeter accuracy of entire environments led by the voices of indigenous elders and medicine people and archaeologists where you could go to places that you can't go with your body um, yeah. to experience things. And that was, and there are ways to make those stories unfold where you can be walking through a world and find an artifact that with a certain proximity trigger, like triggers the voice of someone from the lineage of that object itself, telling you about its significance or hmm. uh, I'm working on a project uh, where I've already built a world made from 30,000 photographs of a place called Salvation Mountain in Southern California the yeah. creator of Salvation Mountain died in 2014, Leonard Knight. I became the archivist of his life. I made a book about Leonard. I made tons of audio recordings. And before I knew about photogrammetry, I photographed every inch of the surface of the mountain while he was still alive. It was really flawed, had shadows all over it. And I thought I could never make a model out of it. But I eventually, a friend helped make that model. And we were able to like repair it and make a model of the surface of the mountain as it existed in 2007, um, because now parts of the mountain have collapsed and it's been painted different colors. So as an art preservationist, there are some things that can only be dimensionalized or that can only be seen uh, in like a re-dimensionalized space with photogrammetry and like gaming world, metaverse world, like preservation. And so that's an environment where you can walk around and hear stories from Leonard. You can have Leonard in there. I made a recreation of Leonard's body from photographs. You could like have a Leonard night tour guide. There's so many ways to tell stories in those kind of spaces. Yeah. I, I saw that project with the, uh, you know, you even have like the van out front with all of the decals yeah, the on it. It's amazing. And you can walk around and jump on the roof of and 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I used to love the movie Into the Wild when I was a kid and Leonard is in that movie and I had yeah. you know, I was looking through your works and I had all these memories came back of like I was like, "Oh, I know this guy. I've seen this place before. Yeah. I never got a chance to visit and still haven't, but yeah, it took me on a, a trip down memory lane with that one. It was very interesting to like actually go into that world and Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting case of something that I actually if the market had, you know, if we were still in the peak of the market, the, the, what we originally wanted to do was fractionalize the surface of the mountain itself and use it as a fundraiser for the mountain, because you could literally own, you know, one of, of a, a couple thousand pieces of the mountain that individually are like a really beautiful patch of different colors of paint uh, that you could own and fund part of the 501c3 that protects that piece of art history um, and you could literally go into a metaverse world to walk up the mountain, which you can't do anymore because they don't have enough people to take care of it and go and see where your piece is on the mountain in like a, a immersive live world with your friends from all over the country. So it does link back into the idea of being able to fund things and preserve things on chain, like in new ways. And th this also gets in, into another topic I want to talk about, uh, or I, which we touched on before, which is just like needing to be so many different things. Um, and I was listening mm. to a podcast you did with Startup Dad, and you were uh, a couple of different points from that. But one, you're like, I'm a photographer, but some days I don't feel like a photographer. And that makes sense because you're engaging in all these different technologies, all these different mediums. And you, you were relaying a story um, because your son, you like introduced photography to him at a young age and... I think the question that this person had posed to you was something along the lines of like, did you always want him to be a photographer? And your response was like, no, it's just a tool, right? I taught him to use a nail gun and the photography is just another nail gun. And I thought that was so interesting because, and, and this relates to what I was talking about before, where like these artists like yourself, like crypto artists, they all need to be 80 different things, uh, you know, and, and talk about the Salvation Mountain project where you, know, you can't just do that if you're a photographer. You need some kind of grounding in the technology. You need some kind of grounding in 3D sculpting and fractionalization mm -hmm. in these technologies, right? So like, it, be, it feels to me more important than ever to avoid entrapment in a single set of skills or in a single medium. I myself have done a bad job of that. I'm a writer first and foremost. That's kind of all I'm good at and the only thing I really know how to do. And I'm kind of just praying every day that like there's still some thirst for just writing out there and you know i work on my own you know fiction projects and however long that takes i know every day is moving closer to the singularity where i'm going to complete this thing and it's no longer going to matter god willing that doesn't happen but like how do we as you know mature adult artists past the point of going to school etc if we don't have this series of nail guns that we've been taught how to use how do we avoid entrapment in the one medium how do we gain those skills and how important it is how important is it to apply like a diverse array of skills to a single arena mm -hmm. in this kind of creative climate that we have today yeah okay we got to go a couple of plays with that because there's the, the the story it's like, of hawkeye it's like a 500 word question why are we why are we talking about nail guns um but and then there's the like too many identities and how does one carry it through the, you know, I, I would only maybe sometimes get confused and say, am I really a photographer anymore? Only if I hold that up against the frame of like my peers who singularly do a kind of photography. Like if I look at my peers at National Geographic, like Jimmy Chin or Paul Nicklin, Jimmy's not a good case because he became a filmmaker. But like if I look at Paul Nicklin or 
uh, Amy Vitale or David Gutenfelder. These are classic photographers, the best in the world that continue to do really eight. They just keep, they're doing that one thing. And sometimes it is a struggle because as I leave that really easy to define trench, I, I do lose audience. Like people really want a consistency in medium and approach or at least subject matter. And, but I'm like, I'm just a very frenetic brain, like ADHD brain that just, I, I'm making 12 things at a time in different like mediums and territories. And I couldn't, if I tried, keep, keep into in one trench and photograph just animals or mountains or something else like that. Um, Mm -hmm. As like a, with the, the topic of like my, my son and like photography is just another tool. I definitely was not trying to make my son into a photographer. I wanted to make him into an engaged human being that understood how to use that particular tool to open up uh, access to people and ideas and question things. Um, the backstory of my son, if people don't, because most people in the, listening to this won't know, he was when he was four years old, um, I gave him like a Polaroid style Fuji camera. And it was back in the day when uh, I controlled the keys with only about like a dozen, maybe 20 other people to the National Graphic Instagram feed in the very beginning. And we could post anything we wanted. And I posted a picture of my son with his first camera to National Graphic that day because we posted almost every day. And everybody wanted to see the pictures and I couldn't put them on there and I couldn't, didn't want to put them on my own. So I made an account for a four-year-old just to just in a, as an experiment, <laughs> just as an experiment to like show like what it was like for a, like a four-year-old's perspective of the world. And I had no idea where it would go. And within a week, there were 30,000 people following a four-year-old. And then, you know, another month later, we were like through nepotism, of course, uh, we were, Hawkeye was getting, <laughs> Hawkeye was getting National Geographic assignments straight up, um, like was getting paid by National Geographic to do assignments because it was unique. It was a four-year-old, like going on really crazy adventures. Like, and we all, I always made sure we went to really aesthetic places and it just always looked amazing. Um, and he used that as a tool to, to talk to rodeo clowns and, you know, people in homeless encampments and, you know, get, you know, people on the side of the road, every, you know, waitress and waiter in every place we went, you know, it was, it was a tool where I could tell him that's your, you can use that and go talk to anybody you want. Mm. Like it, you don't have to be like, as long as you've got that in your hand, you can go. And the only reason you need is because you've got that camera in your hand. Like I just wanted to teach him how to, how to talk to strangers and hear other perspectives. And the photographs were just the evidence of that uh, that journeys and those journeys that we made together. So, and I do that with everything. I give him as many tools as I can. You, I think you use the nail gun uh, language because like when he was five or six, I was also teach him how to use nail guns. And instead of just doing drawings on paper, we'd start grabbing wood scraps in the yard and I teach him how to put wood scraps together with a nail gun. So it's just another tool. My dad still won't let me use a chainsaw and I'm almost 30. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I th- yeah. Well, um, this, this is podcast is not about my father. Um, although maybe he's listening. Um, my point though, is that like, that's a great way to just talk about like, again, the necessity of any individual artist opening themselves up to multiple mediums and seeing them all as tools in a toolkit, as opposed to like 
the singular focus of one's output or the singular mm-hmm. arena for one's artistic journey. And it's like just just a great metaphor, right? This like nail gun photography metaphor. But like you've seen uh, it's happened to you, right? You've had to like evolve past the point of just being not just being a photographer, but being exclusively a photographer towards including all these yeah. other mediums, all these other technologies, yeah. right? Because that's yeah. where, you know, your creative focus is expanding throughout all of them. Yeah. But I'm and it would like, often be like, what are, what are the best tools to do justice to this story would be the question and the framing. And so, like when I talked about doing those immersive projects for National Geographic, that was for a cover story about the uh, reductions of Bears Ears National Monument and Escalante um, when Trump first took office. And I knew that the story was going to be a belly flop if it was just the print story, because it was mm-hmm. such a complex story about native communities and like really old school ranchers and, and racism and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was like, this story is going to get flattened. It's going to be a disaster because it's going to be like postcards. And I knew that if I didn't like use new media, that it would be a fail for the community. So I started building the immersive experiences and doing the photogrammetry on my own credit cards. And the editors told me it was a distraction and not mm. to do it. And, but I, I pushed through it until I eventually had made prototypes and made them pay me back for them. And eventually that, <laughs> that, that year it won the Webby for the best immersive, like interactive design. And it's the only thing that saved the piece. The piece itself was flawed. Um, but that set of immersive experiences um, was pure voice of the community. Cause it was like, it had a different set of rules. As soon as you took it out of the rules of all the different departments inside of a 160 year old print magazine, then it was in a kind of domain where nobody was in charge. And so I could kind of make up the rules. And in that, in that domain, it meant I could give unedited, like speaking like space to like a native person for like three or four solid minutes of what they Mm. wanted to say. And there wasn't a huge editorial pool to cut it down to two sentences. And so it was new media was required to keep it from failing and to do right by the community and the story. And same thing with Leonard Knight to do right by Leonard Knight's story. I need as many layers to that story as I can. So then the conclusion you have to make is that it's incumbent upon anyone doing artistry or telling stories that you have to be abreast of every new technology because there may be emerging around you like a new tool again to tell that story more and not abreast of every not every new technology but you i think that in 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 storytelling one should probably always be asking is there another tool that would like add layers to this or make this better or make this more whole and uh and there almost always is like i'm thinking about every project now almost as having a blockchain component um, a physical, comp- like a flat component, a physical component. Like I'm just trying to think of whole ecosystems around ideas now, instead of one portfolio I plug into a website. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, just going back to one thing you said before, when you have these editors who are like, don't do this. And then you win a webby for the resultant product. Do you get to like, give them shit? Like, is that part of the, like, <laughs> Media I definitely model. always include it in speeches that I do when I'm talking about <laughs> in front of them. I, I think they understand the complexities. I mean, everybody's got like all businesses are filled with all of the silos and the silos are ultimately defined by the budgets. And if the budget of even the biggest magazine in the world doesn't have a silo for experimental storytelling in virtual worlds, 
it's kind of, I can't blame it too much on the editors because they don't have a bucket of money. And so then again, it's a coming on uh, incumbent on us to go find the buckets of money and to not accept like the flatness of that container. And so we have to, we all are perpetual like self fundraisers and trying to expand the boundaries of, of everything we do kind of on our own because the institutions can't, there's no buckets of money. So I'm going to lead you into kind of like our last topic of the day, yep. um, which is about zero one. And I'm going to kind of wade you into the controversy around zero one as it was kind yeah. of exploding a couple of weeks ago, because uh, I think it's really interesting. And I'd love to just have your perspective on it. So you mint a lot on zero one or you've minted a lot on zero one. And a lot of the things, perhaps all of them, correct me if I'm wrong, it's um, pieces from Currency of Protest, which is like an AI-aided photography series that you I did. Also did uh, I also minted a lot of the the early metaverse work. So anybody that got on there was super lucky. I, I, I let go a lot of really good pieces on that one. <laughs> well, and so that leads me directly in this point, right? The controversy yeah. was that like artists shouldn't release their work for free. It devalues them and their work. Um, yeah you know, you have a artistic practice and a history in kind of this entrenched and pretty easily understandable way of being kind of valued for your work, right? You go on assignments for magazines, they're paying you for your services, they're paying you back for, you know, your out-of-pocket credit card purchases that you did for the multimedia storytelling um, when you went to Bears Ears. But, you know, what attracts you to a platform where, like, yes, your work can be seen by a new audience, but it can't enrich you and it may mm -hmm. actually be seen perhaps rightly as like a devaluation of your practice there's a lot of aspects of this um well with currency of protest it made sense because uh currency of protest in its analog when i when i first built it even though i built it with ai in 2022 in the summer of 2022 the final output was the only thing that couldn't make money at that show which was hilarious i do this to myself all the time I fund endless, like I create endless nonprofits and almost everything I do is a kind of extreme distribution experiment that doesn't always bring money back to me. It's just something in me wants like a kind of endless distribution. And I accept that as a kind of currency. But with currency of protests, I literally, you know, it in the, the, the original forms where they were, I've got a bunch of the prototypes here. They were, they were physical bills that were, mm. that when you walked in the show, they were double-sided bills that anybody could walk away with for free. I was the only person mm. that couldn't make money from the show. Um, <laughs> now, like all the biggest museum, you know, curators in the world have got like these physical prints, but I didn't make any money. <laughs> so I don't know. But so with Zero One, like it was a continuation of a distribution experiment um, that it like it, there's a prompt within it that it, that asks people to go and like print and plant those things and try and grow wildflowers with them. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit more complex with the philosophically with the metaverse series because those are works I now can't mint and sell, but I was motivated to put them out because I, I had tried moving some of that work early on and it just was too hard to sell in all the hype of NFT world. And I got caught up in things not being able to sell. And so I didn't really try again. Uh, and I really thought they were all just going to die on a hard drive. And mm -hmm. so when I heard about zero one and I believed in the team, I thought, well, it's either these die on a hard drive or I can share them. And I just made mm -hmm. the choice to share them. And 
uh, I wasn't really thinking about money. At a certain point, though, after I'd put out quite a few, I, I did think, well, maybe I should save some of this stuff. <laughs> um, uh, slow down there, Huey. Uh, so, but I, I'm glad I did it uh, because I, it just breathed new life into all this work. I hadn't really thought about putting that work on chain. And because I put the first work out for free, especially with Currency of Protest, now there'll be more and more and more chapters because the work has been evolving over the last couple of years. And partially because of that release, now it will have many lives on chain. So mm. yeah, maybe for me, it won't like work out financially, but I, I was just happy to have places to move this work, put on chain and not have it die on hard drives. I have one final question on this topic, but I just want to disclaimer. I only talk about zero one when Colborn's not here because I don't want to inflate his ego any further. So, you know, the positives and negatives of him not being around today. Um, So I'm curious if your answer would change if you were like a sculptor or a painter or a writer where you have like a single large scale output as opposed to hundreds of or dozens of components to a shoot or to a project. You mean if like you were putting one thing on zero one and it was free and you knew you like nothing could come back except for in the royalty later? My point or my question is like, is it due to the specific um, like not confines, the specific like contours of your medium that you're able to kind of like put these works into the world in this way? And would you still feel as willing to do so if it were, again, not these projects that have an inherent fragmentation because of the many pieces of currency of protest or because of the many photographs that go into a series, et cetera. Boy, I don't know. I don't connect this one because I don't do very many like singular like object things. Um, I guess maybe I could relate to that, that like I'm, I'm definitely not putting like my Nat Geo cover story photos on zero one. There's, you know, only one of each of those, let's say, or so, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know what motivates some of the other big artist names. I mean, you've got like, you've got Ed Robness put a whole series out in editions of 10 and you had a, you know, earth sample was putting up these, there was some really incredible artists entering, entering that space and uh, they've stopped putting work up, but I'd be curious also to hear the same question to them of like where it all goes. And I think everybody would probably just say that we're all just down for the experiment. I don't know if anybody thought that far ahead to be like, mm-hmm. will I, what will I think of this later? It just felt like the right thing to do. We trusted the team and just another experiment in our lives. Like everything, everything I do is a prototype. Like I, my website is hello prototype. Cause I yeah. like hello prototype.com because I just, I don't put too much weight on any individual thing. Everything is like a prototype for the next. So I can't look, look back and, and ask too many questions about what I should or shouldn't have done. I'm just going to keep prototyping. Good answer. Um, well, that does it for my questions. Um, I'm going to give you the floor for a second. Tell people what they should know about you, what you have going on, whatever you oh, like. Oh, geez. I mean, first first film, the last the last chunk of that collection, it was uh, 732 film strips uh, were minted as one of ones and Transient Labs used it as like the first case study, I think, of like a big batch minting process of theirs it was like 16x efficiency so we mm-hmm. minted like 700 pieces for like 50 bucks total that's sick right and so <laughs> the collection of 732 film strips was broken up into six chunks of randomized 
uh, film strips, and the last one goes up for sale on Thursday. So whoever gets that one, it starts at a zero reserve, zero ETH reserve auction. Um, whoever gets it, it's 122 one of one film strips, and then five of my favorite pieces from that collection as like individual images and some journal entries. Uh, I'm also working on, I can't name all the names, but multiple collaborations with uh, AI artists to use this my images as the seed to build collaborative pieces. I'm, I'm mostly right now only interested in doing collaborative projects. I get kind of bored with my own stuff sometimes. So I'm <laughs> working on multiple collaborations uh, that'll be coming out, I hope over the next two to six months. Um, uh, my climate crisis project is not on chain yet, but I think it w very well could have a life there. The crisis curated, which is all, uh, it's a very large body of AI work um, where the only prompt is one of my own existing photographic images of the climate crisis um, mm -hmm. that I shot for Nat Geo or Harper's or the New York Times or something um, combined with a classical wallpaper pattern from history and it's seamless wallpaper for the end of the world. We can have like links in the bottom of this thing that get... I can I can put I can get get links yeah. in the bottom of this thing. Crisis crisiscurated.com wallpaper for the end of the world. So that one will yeah. certainly be going on chain somewhere if I can figure out the right place to be releasing that. I think because right now it's that's another distribution experiment. Um this is a huge body of work and uh, an entire website created that has no monetization. It's just mm. all free. It's free to the public as a way to re-engage the conversation about the climate crisis. So um, a lot of distribution experiments coming up. There's literally no way to endear yourself more to the crypto art world than releasing shit for free. So we are, like, I, just, I get so much away for free. My whole nonprofit, the whole premise of amplifier.org, it's not, not amplifier.com, it's amplifier.org. Everything we have ever made and commissioned with any artist, and we have a portfolio of 10,000 artists, is free in high resolution. That's it's awesome. because it, it's a distribution engine. It's it's meant to move the messages of movements. And who the fuck would want to stop the movement, like the movement of uh, messages like that? So we do sell things in our store, but everything we've ever made is a free download so that it can have infinite distribution. Cool, man. Um, I love that. And, uh, and I, I really appreciate your time being on the podcast today and just yeah thanks so much for having me we're very grateful for everyone listening as well if you like what we do on the podcast please give us a subscribe or follow or a five-star rating on spotify or apple wherever you're getting this uh please subscribe to our Substack newsletter at museumofcrypto.substack.com all of the links to aaron's work i'll throw it all on the bottom of this uh, wherever you're seeing this on spotify or you know apple or whatever there'll be links galore so please check out aaron's work it's uh remarkable Aaron, thank you so much again for being here. And uh, again, thanks to all of you. We'll see yep. y'all real soon. Yeah. Happy Halloween. Thanks. Happy Halloween. Thank you so much to Aaron Huey for being my guest today. Uh, this podcast was edited and produced by myself, Max Cohen. It featured theme music by Julian Brangold and cold open music by Dayfox, to whom I am both quite grateful. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We will see you all again real soon on another Mocha podcast.